people. Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear, the podcast. Today is a very special episode. It's going to be a bit different than the usual ones. We are going to talk about a book called The Key Man. And one of the authors, Simon Clark, is uh, with us here today. Simon, thank you very much for, for joining us. Good to be here, Ludovic. And um, so I have to start with, with a confession, um, which I'm not proud of, but I think I need to be transparent. Um, I basically do write books and I do write papers, but I hardly read any books and read any papers. I, I typically fall asleep. I lose, I, I lose concentration. I, I doesn't go fast enough. So I, I watch some movies, uh, but even there, it, it's often like something I have difficulties to do. And I think in my life, it's like once every two or three years, there is like one book that like I, I attracts me, I get into it, and I just cannot let it go, and I read it in one go. And, and again, it happened, you know, maybe 10 times in total in my life, or less than 10 times in total in my life. And Simon, you, you, you sent me your book a few months back, and then... I was I was interested, um, but you know um, it's 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 hard for me to read books. And then on top of that, you just send me a PDF, okay? And in fact, I spent forty eight hours reading that PDF. I hardly slept in between, and I just like couldn't let it go. And and it was absolutely fascinating. Um, it it's superbly written. It's the content is absolutely outstanding. So thank you so much because um, you, you you gave me a, an, an amazing time and a lot of very inf good information. And I think it's good information for many people. Mm. And, and I'm sure all the people who will buy your book uh, will feel the same. So thank you for doing such a public service. So it, it must have taken you ages. And the other question is like, your book is so well documented, which is like, how did... How do you manage to get all this information? Is it because once it's like there's this lawsuit, like all the emails become public information or how does, does that work? How do you manage to get suddenly all this information? Well, I'm really glad you, uh, you, you found the book enjoyable and interesting to read, Ludovic. So thank you very much for that. Um, I've been working on this book with my co-writer, Will Louch, for over three years. And we, over that time, have spoken to hundreds of people gathered thousands of documents, uh, emails, company documents, legal filings, regulatory filings. Um, and it's been a big part of our lives for three years. So, But how do you get like to, to the SMS? You, 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 you say like, for example, when, so we are talking about Abrage and we are talking about the head of Abrage. Like at one point in the book, which I paid particular attention because he was in Oxford, giving a talk in Oxford and you're saying the SMS is receiving right before giving that talk. Like, how do you get, how do you know? Okay. Well, we, the, one of the first uh, things we did when we started writing the book was we created a timeline of all the things we knew about Abraj, which maybe I should just say a little bit about. So yeah. um, Abraj started out in 2002 in Dubai as a Middle Eastern private equity firm, and it grew very rapidly. It did some very successful early deals um, and became the largest private equity firm in emerging markets, specializing in buying, investing, selling companies across Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. Um, and it also was one of the first firms to, to present itself as an impact investing firm. So a firm which said that in, as well as making profit, 
it would do good. It would solve social problems. Well, the first private one, right? Because like IFC would say things like this already like the late 90s, early 2000s, right? So I guess it's the first non-DFI to really like come out and say that. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And, and indeed, Abraj raised a lot of money from development finance institutions. Its investors yeah. were included the UK, US, French governments. Um, and then allegedly Abraj stole their money, but that will come to that. Um, so, um, so Abraj was a, was a very successful marketing machine and, and Arif Nakvi was a very frequent and articulate public speaker at investment conferences all around the world, such as Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum meeting. He was a regular there. Um, so there was a lot of public information coming out of Abraj because it was such a relentless marketing machine. So it, that was... It's actually something that was particularly cool is that as I was reading your book, I would go on YouTube and then watch the thing, right? So, so you would have in your book like, oh, Arif was giving this talk on that day in Oxford. I would go on YouTube, put the thing, and I would watch the talk, right? And then I would go back to your book and say, whoa, and this is the SMS you received after, before, and like, it, it was amazing. So I would encourage people actually to watch YouTube at the same time as they read your book. Yeah, Um so yes, and all those those sources are documented in, in the footnotes at the end of the book. So there's one layer of sourcing. There's a lot of public information out there about Abraj. And then we 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 broke the first story with I broke the first story with colleagues at the Wall Street Journal on February the 2nd, 2018. Uh, that story said that investors in Abraj's $1 billion healthcare fund, which was supposed to be buying and investing in hospitals and clinics in some of the poorest countries in the world, um, the investors in that fund were investigating about whether their money had been misappropriated, misused by Abraj. Uh, the investors that were investigating included the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, the French government's Proparco Fund, the UK government's CDC, uh, the United States government's OPIC. Um, they were looking into concerns that the money they had given a barrage to, to do good and make money by building hospitals was being used by a barrage for other purposes, such and as paying salaries or supporting Arif's billionaire lifestyle and expenses of a barrage, which was deeply concerning. So that story went out on February the 2nd, 2018. But Simon, so, and, and I remember you calling me at the time about that story, and, 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 and Bloomberg quickly did that too. There was a lot of coming out of Bloomberg Asia, and I commented with, 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 uh, to them as well. The first time you called me, it, it was not exactly the rhetoric. The rhetoric was that money had been called from its investors, and these investors didn't see any investment being made with this money. And so they, they were wondering where their money were. But I, I don't think they were really, I, I, at least I, for, from the information I had, but they, they felt that the, the money would have been diverted to, to the operations of the firm. And what I replied at the time was, you know, that they can do quite a lot. If you read the limited partnership agreements of his firm, you know, they can take the money and can tell you, we are still searching for investments. We just thought we got it a bit earlier. We keep it on a cash account. We kind of, and investors have limited recourse and, and, you know, it, 
it's not just Abraham that can do such things. Like anyone could do such things. It, it it didn't sound extraordinary to me that some investors would say we send money and we didn't we don't really know where where it was invested yet, and they're telling us you know we are still looking for something. So what happened was in late 2017, one of the investors in the healthcare fund became concerned because yeah he 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 was being asked to send constantly send rounds of money to the healthcare fund for new investments but as far as he could see from the documentation he was receiving from from the healthcare fund so they hadn't they they hadn't invested the money he'd already sent the fund so his, his first question was uh why are you asking me for more money when you haven't spent the money I already sent you? Yeah. And it looked like there was over $200 million in the fund, which had been called, but not invested. Mm-hmm. Um, then that investor decided to, he, he was suspicious. So he asked, where, where are you keeping the money? And he asked this in uh, like September, October, November, 2017. And Abraj sent him a, a bank statement for an account at the Commercial Bank of Dubai. And this bank statement said there was uh, $250 odd million in this account as of June the 30th, 2017. And a couple of weeks later, there was a conference call for investors for the healthcare fund. And this investor just decided to ask, you know, again, can you remind me where where you're keeping the money? And the response he got was, uh, it's a standard bank in the Cayman Islands. And he was like, what do you mean it's a standard bank in the Cayman Islands? You told me a couple of weeks ago it's in Commercial Bank of Dubai. What happened? You know, which, well, which one is it? And there was like silence on the call. And then one of the Abraj executives said, well, we'll get back to you. And the investor was like, thinking, this is insane. You know, this is a fund management company. It's their job to manage money. They say one of, they're one of the best in the world, but they don't know where they Which bank is $200 million. Yeah. So anyway, sometime later, Braj came back to the investors via email and said, it's in the Commercial Bank of Dubai. Sorry about that. But at that point, the investors were all extremely concerned about where their money was. So they asked, okay, look, we want to see all the bank statements for the last two years, all, you know, money going in, money coming out. And Abraj delayed and delayed and delayed. And and then they sent, Abraj sent the investors another bank statement for the day of December the 7th, 2017. One day, showing there was like 200 odd million dollars in this account. And the investors said to Braj, look, that's not what we asked for. We asked for, you know, bank statements since this fund started operating. And you've sent us a bank statement for one day. Now, what Abraj had had done on that day and with the previous Commercial Bank of Dubai statement on June the 30th, 2017 was, in fact, that bank account had been pretty much empty you know, $15 million or so when it's supposed to have hundreds of millions of dollars in it. But in order to make it look like it had hundreds of millions of dollars in it on those days, Abraj borrowed $150 million from an airline 
and flew which was the portfolio company of this, yeah, from Air Arabia, and they deposited the loan in the bank account, the healthcare fund bank account, for a couple of days. Yeah. Took a bank statement snapshot with the the airline money in it. Yeah. And then to the investors. Sent the so bank statements to the investors to say, look, here's your money. Um, return the loan to the airline company, and hey, presto. But how did you know, like, did this uh, 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 guy, so the, the, the investor was, was very suspicious and very good, was working for, for, for the Gates Foundation. Is he the one contacting you about the story, or how do you hear about the story? Well, and how do you get a sense that it is so big? Because I remember talking to you and seeing that like, you really felt it was like a big deal, and I felt like, Okay, it, it is something, but I, I don't see. So early on, you must have had the, the instinct that there is something really big here. And how do you get informed of that? And how do you get that, that, that feeling that it is very big? So, I mean, we, don't, we certainly don't have perfect information, especially initially in an investigation. At the very beginning of the investigation, we, we had credible sources, multiple sources, telling us that there was a problem in the healthcare fund. And then we started to get evidence, emails, documents, um, some confirmation from some people at Abraj. And so we had enough information to write the first story. But when we wrote the first story, which was about the healthcare fund, we didn't know the extent of the problems or what was going to happen next. We didn't know that Abraj had been siphoning money from a number of its other investment funds as well as the healthcare fund. And basically, you know, I, I've been writing about private equity for, for 15 years or more and had first met Abraj executives in 2008. And so I had sources there and you gather sources, you talk to as many people as you can, you win people's trust, and, and you start to gather information, like gathering piece, pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. So I often think of what we do as we have to make jigsaw puzzles and we have to make them accurately. But first of all, we have to find the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And there are many, many sources, people, institutions, regulatory filings out there that have pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. So we gather those together and start piecing them together. Um, initially, we were very reliant on sources who I still, I can't tell you who they are. Um, I, won't, or I won't tell you who they are um, because in most cases I know who they are. There was one source initially that tipped us off that ticked, will louch my colleague off via email about the problems at Abraj, and we still don't know who that person is. That person provided a lot of information, but we couldn't use any of it in the articles because we didn't know who they mm -hmm. are and where they're getting information, but they were telling us there are these problems, which gave us a clue about what might be going on and what we needed to go and look for elsewhere. There are many good people who worked at Abraj, and I'm glad to say that we're still in contact with those people amongst Well, it, it did attract a lot. I have lots of alumni who ended up there, et cetera. It's a, it, but there was quite some turnover. I had seen that, you know, they never really wanted to tell me why, but there, there, there was, I, I could see that people were not staying there too long. Um, and so suddenly, given that, you know, this was the impact guys, the image was so good, it, it attracted a lot of very 
good people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Abraj told a very compelling and very seductive story publicly, which was, we are professionals, we are experts, we work to the highest standards in the world, and our job is to make money for investors and to end poverty too. We're going to invest in companies that provide goods and services in developing countries. We're going to create jobs. We're going to increase prosperity. We're going to make profit for ourselves and our investors, and we're going to end poverty. You know, who wouldn't want to work for a firm that said that? But yeah, but at the same time, this firm is like behaving like, you know, you're describing like the, the orgies, like both sexual and food and drinks and so on. And I, I came across them or so in some conferences and I, I was amazed, right? So I was in a conference on emerging markets, private equity. Most people are from DFIs and the like, you see everybody behaving very modestly. And then there was the Abash team that was just like splashing things everywhere. And I ended up in, in actually... Uh, in, in, in the same place, in a restaurant, and then in, 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 in a pub with them. And they just grabbed me and they were making like fun of me being like, you know, the, um, yeah, the, and, the and, and, you know, it, it, was, it was quite amazing. Yeah, the Abraj parking lot in Dubai was something to be seen, full of Ferraris and McLarens. And again, you know, if they're, they're being profitable and they're doing what they say, then great. The trouble is there was a very, very, very big difference between what, they said they were doing and what they were doing. And this contrast, which is really quite extraordinary, is sort of the key tension in the key man. So you went back to, our, you know, going back to one of your early questions, like how do we find out, you know, what was going on on one day? So, you know, we created this timeline with all the public uh, information about Abraj. And then we were gathering emails or documents. People were sharing information with us and so we got some of these you know emails and and which you refer to from sources and then you know I, this is more than a year after we started reporting um the united states department of justice filed a criminal indictment against uh six abraj executives and the The US SEC also filed civil charges as well. And these contained a lot of information, including more emails and more conversations. And, 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 and so we took all that information and we put it into the timeline. And mm -hmm. so then you can start to see that, you know, on the day a senior abroad executive is giving a speech in... In, in, in a very grand setting, it may be Davos, it may be Oxford University about what a wonderful job they're doing. You know, they're also receiving emails from colleagues saying, ah, we've run out of money, we need to pull some more out of Fund 4. Um, so that's, that's how we knew what was going on yeah. the same day. We forensically created this timeline mm -hmm. of all the, the information from all the sources okay. that we had gathered. The, the the reason I, I I I think the book is so important is also that it take it teaches a lot about private equity and about the finance finance world more than like the story itself. So the, the story of Abraj is interesting. It's kind of like Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street plus. I'm sure that it, it would be a very good movie, and, and I'm sure the movie would be made from from your book. But but it is what it teaches about private equity and what it teaches about. Uh, financial markets. So if we start with financial markets, 
one thing that I would spot there is one can say whatever about the United States, but when these guys get behind someone, like it is trouble, right? So, you know, you can say, you know, you know, that the, the, the regulation is, is not tight enough or whatever, but if, and that they don't have enough like strict rules or things like that. But if you break one of the rules, like they'll get you. And they are like really like ruthless. And like it, it, once the FBI is on you, they're on you and, and you want to escape. So like what fascinated me with this story is that would it have happened the same way if there wouldn't have been a single U.S. investor in Abraj, right? What if Abraj had only UK, European investors and there was no Americans involved? Would the, would the trouble been has big because here you mentioned you say the SEC went in the FBI etc. This is all why because there were some U.S. investors. Well, two big one. That's it. It's not like as, as if like Abraj was based in the U.S. or had like tons of U.S. like small retail investors. Um, so, so, so what what do you think? Like, was the FCA involved at all? Would 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 it have happened? Like, if there wouldn't have been any U.S. guys. There were, there were more than two big investors. Um, there was the United States government, and it's never a good idea to steal money from the United <laughs> States government. Um, there was the Gates Foundation. There were also many public pension funds. So Washington State Investment Board. Yeah, there were some. Yeah, yeah. Hawaii. And, and the, the, these pension funds are putting money belonging to teachers, police officers. Yeah, yeah, judges, yeah nurses, firefighters, into a branch. Uh, uh, they were often advised by your good friends at Hamilton Lane to do this, yeah. uh, which was big. The firm was a big supporter of a for many years. Um, so absent the US, would you think it would have happened to the same extent, would have unraveled as quick? To answer your question in one word, no. I mean, let's look at what happened here. It was, it was... U.S. law enforcement authorities, which investigated and are prosecuting Abraj. Um, the Dubai Financial Services Authority, which was the principal regulator of Abraj, um, they posthumously fined Abraj $315 million, but that was months after... Uh, Arif Nakvi had been arrested. Um, Arif was arrested at Heathrow Airport in London in April 2019 um, because um, the the U.S. authorities had issued a, courts had issued an arrest warrant, and he was arrested by UK police on behalf of the U.S. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that any regulator or law enforcement body outside the United States was was proactively investigating a branch. Yeah, because there's a lot of French money in it. There's a lot of Dutch money in it. There's a lot of English money in it, right? And, and it's not the same thing, right? So it does show that, you know, the US judicial system is pretty... Well, this is... This is, this is this is part of a, another story, arguably, about regulators and yeah, law yeah. enforcement. Um, it, you know, the, the the U.S. law enforcement bodies take their job seriously, and 
and and why shouldn't white collar crime be be taken seriously why should people who are accused of stealing money from us pension pension funds you know be held accountable to the in a court of law but the, the staying on this theme about like you know the, the bigger things we, we we learned about how the world works the the thing that i've been whining about again and again is this myth that you know lps are sophisticated large blah 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 and it's like you know on arm's length negotiation with gps my experience my observations is that lps are not saying anything they don't dare to say anything and gps are like just like guards that are like worshipped by the lps like the the limited uh, uh partners like advisory councils are just like you know there's there's nothing that is like any close to like governance or monitoring in these things is all you know and and so here it's a young guy with very strong principles that just goes for it and most people my students all people i know they would say like look i'm going to be fine i would never get a job in private equity this is like the most lucrative career i should not make noise and this guy doesn't care this guy goes and say this is wrong and it's and it's you see, you, you cited all these big guys. You cited Hamilton Lane, who has like $700 billion under advisory in private equity. You cited the Washington State Pension Fund, which is like the largest investor in private equity among U.S. state pension funds. All these guys, they didn't move. We didn't hear them. The guy who made it is the 30-year-old who just said, not in my books, right? You, you say it well in your book. I think it's Part of his life story, the guy is coming back from like a one-year round two of the world where he did meet poverty. He's a highly principled man, and then he just doesn't want to let it go. And and you know, asking these trick questions about the bank accounts and so on is remarkable. And it may feel natural, like when you said it, you know, it may feel like okay, it's it's just cool. But this is really exceptional. If this guy doesn't scream. I don't know how long he would have gone for. And, and I don't know how many other funds are doing mini average type of stuff. Because again, it is within their power to shift money around from a fund, from things. And, and, and there is information, but it's always imperfect. And, and if they don't, I feel like giving information to LPs, they don't. And so it's very important. That guy is playing a huge role. And it's very unusual. Yeah, so the, 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 the person you're talking about is Andrew Farnham, who worked at the Gates Foundation. Um, I mean, he's, he's probably in his 40s. And, but he, you know, he did his job. He did his job properly. I mean, the, the heroes in this book are people that just did their job properly. And it's not yeah, but there are very few of them. Huh? <laughs> there are very few of them. Well, it turns out that's correct, yes. I mean, these are these are the. It, it turns out that it can often be very arduous just to do your job properly. Well, it, 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 but it's because usually you damage your career by doing your job properly in in, in the practical setting. It should not be like that. But I mean, apparently, it, it, it can well be like that. I mean, because imagine that he wouldn't he wouldn't have gone to like the complete collapse of Abraj. But the guy could have got it like wrong, right? Let's say, you know, he was suspicious, but in fact, there was nothing. Abraj did mix up two bank accounts, but it was fine, et cetera, right? This guy would have had the reputation of being like a troublemaker, an annoying person, et cetera. And his career would have been greatly damaged. And even now where he's proven right, I don't know if his career prospects have been improved or, or decreased because, because of that. I would certainly hire him, but 
Um, I, I, I don't know if, you know, some other people would. I mean, he was courteous and he was asking very simple questions like, can you tell me where my money is? <laughs> if someone has a problem with that question, then, then there's a problem. Yeah, but it's not their money. That's the thing. Is that like everybody's managing other people's money, so they're thinking of their career more. You know, then that's why every you know everyone in private equity, most people in private equity, are managing someone else's money. Yeah, that's a big issue. Which is why they should be able to ask whatever they want. You know, between investors and and GPs. I mean, there should be transparency, and 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 there should be clear responses. And if there aren't clear responses, then there's probably a problem. I mean, my issue with private equity is that, and the issue that I think that the key man shows is that private equity is an industry which has a lot of secrecy, a lot of privacy. And 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 and, and it's a privilege to be granted privacy to work in. Um, and it can be abused. And clearly, that the, the the secrecy in in private equity that was afforded to Abraj was was abused by the firm. It was that secrecy which enabled the firm to say one thing, like we're doing a great job, and then to do another thing, which was you know to mismanage. If there was full transparency on where the money was coming from, where it was going, then it wouldn't be possible. To, to say one thing and do another thing. Yeah, but but I would say it's actually, it is a scale. So it's not like either like, you know, you, you, you abuse or you don't abuse it. I think everybody abuses it to, to an extent. And you just have some firms that abuse it very little in private equity. And you have some firms that have abused it tremendously, like Abraj did. They really pushed it far to the point of like taking 250 million and not telling people where it was going. That's pretty, that's pretty extreme. But in between, there are, like when you're in secrecy, everybody abuses to a certain extent. So people would just do it mildly and some people would do it more strongly well, because I, some things may not be classified as direct fees. But when people start charging certain type of fees on assets and things like that, you know, it's not far from self-dealing and, 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 and tunneling money and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, may, maybe, maybe not. I, I, I need to stick to the facts. And so I don't know the facts of every private equity firm, and I can't know because of the privacy. We, I know the case of Abraj, this, this, these things have happened which should not have happened. And then as in, with regards to other private equity firms and the industry in general, it requires my trust, right? Because yeah. if I'm not being shown what's happening and I'm being told everything is fine, then I then 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 the industry is counting on my trust, and if my trust is violated as a, as a citizen once, then I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical the next time I see something happening. So this is the this is the issue, particularly with Abraj. So Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, he stole money. I mean from from people who weren't sophisticated investors um, and people who he took money from people saying, I'll, I'll make you wealthier. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make profits for you if you, if you give me money. And, and then, you know, he did whatever he did to me, Abraj took this, it's, it's conduct to a whole other level because yeah. it was saying not only I will, we will make you investors money, 
we will end poverty too. Yeah, yeah, it's like and, it's win-win. And so, and, and with that mandate, they won the support of the United Nations. They got funding from governments, which were giving them money primarily because they believed in their development mandate, in their mission to end poverty. And that money was, was my money. It was your money. It was taxpayers' money. Yeah. And as that money was being raised by Abraj, Abraj was saying that it was going to help to provide a public good, ending poverty, creating education, creating work, creating health services. And then when um, it turned out that there was a problem at Abraj, everyone went silent. No one would answer my questions. The institutions that gave Abraj money were extremely reluctant to talk to us. Yes, um, but we're not doing their job, you see, like lots of people. No, but wh where did this, where did the conversation about the public good go? Yeah. I mean, c hello, can we have a conversation now about what went wrong? I mean, maybe we'll learn something if we can have a yeah. conversation about what went wrong. I mean, I, I think that private equity is a very important industry, and I think the impact investing is a very promising area. But if we but there is a, a degree of of of, of um, naivety around this, I find like people are like so desperate to believe in that story that they just like take take it like so literally. Like you know, a, a degree of skepticism is is I think pretty you know sane. Like like. The naivety of people is is, is is incredible to me. That's another big girl lesson. Than just, yeah, I mean, we're talking saying. about very serious issues, okay? I mean, we're talking about poverty, and, 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 and we're talking about efforts to end poverty. And, and at the same time, as we're talking about how to make money, how to make profits. So it's a very seductive argument. You know, I can make money, I can end poverty at the same time. Um, but it's very hard to do both of those things. And it's very hard. It's even harder to do them at the same time. Okay, I'm sure it's possible, but we're going to need to have a long and interesting conversation about how exactly firms intend to do that. And let's have a conversation when things go wrong as well as when things go right. Yeah. We might learn something. I, I just think we need to have a more open conversation. And if firms are raising money from public institutions, then the public has a right to know what's going on. Uh, yeah. In Abraj, in the, in the key man, it was extremely hard to find out what was going on. It's taken three years of pretty much working on, on this every day to piece together what exactly happened. And but it, it's beyond secrecy, I think. It's, so secrecy is one thing. Somebody said to me recently, private equity is the North Korea of finance. Is that it's it's beyond secrecy. Is that it's the fear of people of talking. I I I, I do podcasts with some people I know very well. We talk. They, they they keep to a party line. We turn off the mic and they say, "Oh, by the way, I read this paper of yours like, that everybody was whining about. Like you're spot on." And I work for that firm. Okay. And 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 it's actually ten times as bad as what you said. And and but it was as soon as the mic is off, um, people are like completely scared to talk. Nobody is talking. Well, and and it's, it's it's extraordinary. There is a there is a great there's a great use and a great fear of litigation in private equity and finance in general. You know, when when I write a story that may I have facts that may 
require firms to ask answer difficult questions you know it, it it's it's fairly normal for the the, the the calls from the public relations people to be followed up by emails from their lawyers uh, and and sometimes that stops stories from being published sometimes it it delays them and the thing that i surprised me about the abraj case was that i did find out that after our initial story was published saying there are problems at abraj abraj was then talking to investors their initial message to investors was it was fake news which it was not yeah. and and our story at the wall street journal was followed by a story in the new york times and it's it would be extremely unusual that the a story in the wall street journal and the new york times would be fake. Yeah. Uh, and our story was not fake, but that didn't stop Abraj from telling that to investors initially. Then yeah, and, Abraj, and, and, Abraj was meeting with investors and they were asking questions and Abraj told some of the investors, just remember that you're covered by an NDA, by a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You cannot talk to anyone. So yeah. they were, you know, they were sort of, threatening their investors as well like you can't yeah. and that's you know that you know they can stand on it on a stage and and be very public when they're when they're marketing their investments but when there's a need to ask challenging questions this is where it's north korea it's like you're on a party line if you repeat the party line you can talk and i mean yeah yeah talking about that and that that, that first reaction maybe to to, to end there in your book, you mentioned something that I didn't know, but Hamilton Lane was an advisor that was very keen on Abraj. But they, at one point, you mentioned that they are taking a stake in Abraj. So are they taking a stake personally? Is it like no, Hamilton no, no, Lane they, had they, a stake they, in the Abraj, no. the advisory firm, or they had the, no, asked they some of their investors to invest into Abraj, the firm? We are talking no, about. they didn't take a stake in the firm. Um, they they the relationship started i believe between abraj and hamilton lane when Abra- hamilton lane acquired a, 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 some of the stakes the gp stakes in some of the funds so they they did a secondary yeah but this is what i'm i'm talking about oh no you mean on the secondary they they, they acquired like like, like practically fund stakes not not stakes in the management company exactly okay. bought some some of the gp commitments in the firest funds okay okay that, that, and, 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 and so, so Abraj sold to Hamilton Lane um, some of the GP investments in various funds. Okay, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm not clear, because when you say GP investments, it sounds like it is, it is, is, it is a, a piece of Abraj that was being sold. But you, you, no, you know, when, let's say a private equity firm raises a billion dollar fund. Maybe 50 to 100 million dollars of that comes from the GPs. They invest. That's right. Right. Okay, so they bought back the GP stake. Yes, some of it, yeah. Okay, which is a, a bit of an odd thing like to buy. You know, usually that's the skin in the game, so it's a bit odd that somebody would then go and buy the skin in the game of the GP. The whole idea is that that's skin that's in the my, game. That's so. my understanding of what happened. Okay. Um, and and then there is this, 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 this guy at, at, at Hamilton Lane who is told the story and then refuses to believe it. Is it, is it a North Korea case there again? Is like, I this, the, the person is, thinks these people are such gods that he cannot question? Or what, what do you think went in that person's mind? Like, he's told that he's wrong, but it is not hard to see why it's wrong. 
And the guy, instead of investigating like the Gates guy, then he calls the CEO of Abrash saying, you have somebody in your team who's saying like bad things about you. Like, it's like the exact opposite, right? So what you're referring to is in, in September 2017, and another anonymous whistleblower, probably an Abrash employee, sent an email to investors in in, in, in the, a $6 billion fund that Abraj was trying to raise, saying, beware, do your due diligence. The firm is lying to you. And so this email went to Hamilton Lane. Um, and the, Hamilton Lane did actually ask Abraj about this, say, we've got this email, what, what do you say? Um, and Arif response was you know how dare you this is this is libelous this you know there's nothing in this and uh, i you know at that point in time i'm not sure if there if there was how much pushback there was from hamilton lane to abraj at that time um, i mean certainly the fundraising continued after that email was sent it it, it didn't cause um, the fundraising to immediately stop. And, and that's another less, bigger lesson for private equity is that here you have like the largest advisor in the world in private equity gets alerted like this, doesn't investigate more than that, continues to advise people to like, like put money into these guys. And then once the story is out and you are proven right, Simon, and they are proven wrong, these guys still are the largest inv- advisors oh, in the yeah, world. And it's like our, our final story early in 2018, I believe Hamilton Lane did contact the Dubai regulator and say, uh, we think there might be an issue in another of Abraj's funds. So um, I'm not entirely sure, you know, of, of what happened in, in Hamilton Lane response. Okay. Um, okay. The issue um, was that one of the people who was working for Hamilton Lane and had a working relationship with Abraj, Arif was also offering a job to this person. And so it's reasonable to believe that that person's loyalties were a bit torn. When yeah, this is a revolving door issue that we see in many yeah. places in finance. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, but, but I don't know if you followed up on, on, on that guy who's mentioned in the book, or is, maybe he's mentioned in the book. And I, or, but so this person now is in jail, has been arrested. Uh, the, 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 the person at Hamilton name that was dealing with Abraj for domestic violence. Yeah. And then... TPG took over the healthcare fund of Abraj with a RISE fund. And the person who created RISE fund at TPG is, if not in jail, at least has been arrested for having trying to bribe universities in the US to get his son, I believe, in, in certain schools. So it, it looks there, but like there is um, all these people that, or at least these people that were into this win win impact world, et cetera on the side, uh, 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 yeah, it's always something that fascinates me. So the gentleman at Hamilton Lane you're mentioning to, I believe, is is out of jail now. Um, and the person you're referring to at TPG is Bill McGlashan, uh, who led the RISE Fund. And he, he, he has been sentenced to jail time in the US college admissions scandal. He has acknowledged that, that that wasn't a good thing to do. And it certainly doesn't reconcile with his 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 ambitions to do to do to make the world a better place as well as making money. I mean, the issue here is that we are all human. None of us are perfect. 
And uh, it's good that finance wants to find an ethical aspect to its operations. It's it's great that private equity world is exploring how it can boost impact investing. But these things are not easy and things can go wrong and people can do things they shouldn't do. And we need to be able to have a bigger, wider, more grown-up conversation. It can't just be that people in the finance industry get to say what they want when they're marketing and then refuse to ever answer a question again if something goes wrong. I mean, these are important uh, firms and these are important missions to have and and we need to have a bigger, broader conversation. Uh, And I hope that people who read The Key Man will engage in conversation with each other and and so we can all have a bigger better understanding of what it might take to to run a successful private equity impact investing firm i think it's a great takeaway i think like i said the book is interesting per se the story is fascinating you have everything in there to have like an amazing and exciting story but there are lots of bigger lessons to draw from it that can be used because no firm is 100% clean when they all live in secrecy. And, and so, uh, and also a lot more, you know, respect for uh, journalists, especially the private equity ones that are under like particular pressure. Again, you're, you're the one working in the, in the North Korea part of, of, of finance. So Simon, thank you so much for all you do. You know, I'm a strong supporter and, and I'd always be happy to, to continue to help as much as I can. And thank you for writing this book. On top of that, it's like absolutely wonderfully written. And I'm sure it's going to be mega successful. So thank Thank you so much, uh, Simon. Thank you, Ludovic. So this was uh, Abrage Laid Bare. Don't forget to subscribe. And congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.